0: Welcome to Crossroads. I'm going to welcome those of you joining us here at Newburgh, those of you joining us online, and those of you joining us at our West Campus. It's great to have you all with us today as we kick off this brand new series now, this last week, we closed out a sermon series walking through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians that started on Easter wrapped up last weekend. And starting today, we're going to take the next six weeks to go through the second half of the chapter or of the book of Ephesians by looking at God's design for many different areas of our life. Now, I am from Eastern Kentucky and proud of it, born and raised in Eastern Kentucky. And one of the things that comes with being born and raised in Eastern Kentucky is you have an inherent gift of being able to get things done, whether you have the right tools for the job or not, or or even if, if you have the right design or not. I mean, growing up, my brother and I used to put these inherent gifts into practice. There was a time when we wanted a clubhouse, but we didn't have the materials we needed and we didn't really even have a design. So what we started to do was collect used nails and used pieces of wood from wherever we could find them when we brought them together. And we ended up building what was a two-story clubhouse that was right next to our parents' porch. And this thing was awesome. I mean, we would get on top of our parents' porch and we would run and dive into our clubhouse because it was close enough to do that. And we had a blast doing it. But but the problem was is is our neighbors, as they looked at it, that they realized that there was no design in mind whenever we built this thing. And the fact was, it it didn't really meet any like building codes for anywhere in the world, let alone here in the US. So they began to tell our parents, hey, you probably need to tear it down. And we had to tear it down because uh, people around us realized that there was no really design here and it probably wasn't that safe. It wasn't going to be a very good place for kids to play in long term. There was another time growing up when we wanted a swimming pool. So we decided that we could do that in our backyard. We could figure this out. So we began to dig up a section in our yard. And for some reason, my mom didn't agree with us, but we thought her garden was the best place to do this. All right. So we spend four or five hours digging up my mom's garden, and then we put a tarp in it, we fill it up with water, and we have a swimming pool. It is fantastic. The problem is, is it wasn't a uh, very well-designed swimming pool, so it lasted for about a day or two before we put a hole in the tarp, and my mom said, I want my garden back. So that one didn't really last that long either. Another thing we discovered growing up that I still use today, I even use it here at church, is we discovered that visqueen, you know that plastic they use on construction sites, it is the best material in the world for a slip and slide, all right? So all you got to do, get some visqueen, go six mil or thicker though, okay? That's the trick. Put some soap on it, put water on it, and you've got yourself a slip and slide. The problem is you can only use it once or twice before it doesn't really work any longer because you can't get it dry. It just doesn't work out any longer and you have to throw it out because it's not designed to be a slip and slide. So as we jump into this series, the thing I think that I've learned in my life as I've continued to get older is using things as they were designed is probably the best use. I mean, we've got people here that either graduated this week or had graduates in your family, right? Anyone here have a graduate in your family or graduate this week? All right, several of you, that's awesome. Um, As I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded that whenever I was moving from Gracing, Kentucky to Evansville, we were loading up my box truck and we got to the end and we realized that we needed a rope or a ratchet strap to tie this last little thing down and I didn't have one. And so I had a couple of options. I could have gone to the store and spent like $5 on something, but I'm not about that life. So I decided I could figure this out. And I looked around and I found my honors cords from graduating. And I tied down our mattress and stuff using these honors cords. Now, the the fact is that I don't really know what you're supposed to do with those things after you graduate anyways. And I know what most of you are thinking. How on earth did you graduate with honors after hearing about your life? I don't know either. The only thing I can say is our God is a God of miracles, okay? (laughs) That's all I can come up with. But as I've discovered how much better things are when you use them the way they're designed to, it kind of reminds me of where we are in this passage as we think about God's design. I mean, I think a lot of us have been there, right? When you're you're trying to nail in a nail, you get to the point where you're finishing up a project and you realize you can't find your hammer. So you just grab a drill and you use the battery on the drill or you use a screwdriver or you use a pot or a pan, whatever you can find. And while these things may work, you're not doing things the way they're designed, which means that, that it's probably not gonna be as efficient as it needs to be. You're not using things as they are designed to be. And really it just makes life harder. And over these next six weeks, as we look at God's design for many areas of our life, I think we're going to be forced to ask the question, are we living by God's design or are we just making this thing up as we go along? Are we like my brother and I building a clubhouse where we just find whatever scrap we can and we throw it together? Or are we actually looking at God's design for different areas in our life? Today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 and we're going to look at God's design for the church and I think us as a church we're going to be forced to ask the question, are we living as a church according to God's design or are we just doing this thing on our own? And if we're just doing this thing on our own, I'm here to tell you I think we can find a better use of our time think if we begin to live by God's design, we're going to see an impact in our community that we won't even be able to measure because God has been at work. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see that Paul was real nice to us, so he divided it up in three little movements. First, we're going to see that we are united by faith. A foundational point for us as we think about the church is the fact that we are united by faith. Secondly, we are gifted by grace. The truth that we'll see in this passage is that each and every follower of Jesus has been given a gift by grace. And finally, we are contributors by design. It means that each and every follower of Jesus has been given a role in this mission that God has laid before us. You are to be a contributor in this mission. Now, we are going to start here with our first point. We are united by faith. And we're going to jump in in Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. As Paul starts out this passage, he starts with that word, therefore, which again points us back to what he's just said at the end of chapter three, where he prayed that the church would have the the strength to even be able to comprehend God's incomprehensible love. And as we go through God's design for the church and God's design for many different areas of our life over the next several weeks, we're going to see that that's a foundational point, that we do this out of the fact that God has an immense love for us. So God's design for us is on purpose and he has our best interest in mind. And he begins by saying, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you've received. What does it mean to live worthy of the calling we have received? Does it mean that that we've got to make sure that we always have a star on our chart each and every day, that that we live these perfect lives? That's not what Paul is pointing to here. Rather, whenever he talks about this idea of living worthy of the calling, he immediately points to living a life pursuing unity running after the unity that God desires us to live in. And this reminds us of the passage we just looked at two weeks ago, where we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we saw that the fact is that by Christ's death and resurrection, we've not only been reconciled to God, but we've also been reconciled to one another. God has brought us together. And now what Paul says here is, make every effort to stay united. I mean, why does Paul have to tell us to make every effort to pursue unity? Well, it's because the natural thing for us is to find differences with one another, right? We find all of the reasons we shouldn't get along. We find all of the reasons why we should disagree, why we should just remain separate. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, make every effort to pursue the unity that is yours because of what Christ has done. Disunity is natural in our fallen world. So he says, do the unnatural thing that should be natural for you now because of what the Spirit is doing in your life. What does this look like for us? How do we pursue this unity? He says, hey, be people who are marked by, look at verse 2, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, these characteristics aren't very natural for us, and they, they aren't really even held in very high esteem in our culture. But, but we see here that while they aren't natural, they are the natural outworking of the Holy Spirit working in our life. I mean, they remind me of the fruit of the spirit, which I've messed up the last two services. So I'm just going to read them from Galatians chapter five, where Paul says this. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Paul says right here in this passage, similarly, hey, be people who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of living your natural way and letting division come, instead be a people marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. The call of this passage is for us to do the hard work of pursuing unity, of running after unity. But as we come to this idea, I think we ask the question, are we seeking after unity just for unity's sake? Do we run after unity and just put aside any difference we have in the world? Well, not exactly. And we see that here because Paul says that we are united by faith. He goes on in verses 4 through 6 to show us the reason why we have unity. He says that there is one body, one spirit, and one hope. The idea of one body is the idea of the church being together. There is only one church of God, and each local body is the local manifestation of the body to the world. There is one spirit. The truth that we see in the scripture is that whenever you come to Christ, you receive the spirit of God. And it's not that some Christians get grade A spirit, some Christians get grade B spirit, and then if you're really low on the totem pole, you get like grade C or D spirit. No, there is only one spirit that comes to live in us and we have that one spirit in common which should drive us to pursue unity. There is one hope, which is this idea that we have this sure foundation, we have this sure hope in front of us because we serve a God who is always faithful to his promise and this is a hope that all who are in Christ share together. He goes on to say that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This idea of one Lord reminds us of Jesus being the foundational piece here who is now sitting on the throne next to his Father, ruling over all things. There is one faith, reminding us that that the object of our faith is Christ. The faith that we have in common is the fact that we believe and trust that apart from Jesus, we have no hope. But because we have Jesus, we have a sure hope. We have one faith. He goes on to say that there is one baptism. I love this reminder that baptism isn't just about an individual. My baptism wasn't just about me. We had a few baptizes or baptisms this weekend. A guy named Luke got baptized. And whenever Luke got baptized, it wasn't just about Luke. But Luke was baptized into the body, which means that us as a body, what we're saying to Luke and other people who are baptized is, hey, we are going to come alongside you in this. Because we now have you in our body, we are going to fight together on this. It's not just about an individual. It's about being brought into the body. So he says, we have one baptism. He goes on to say that there's one God and father of all. Which remind us is that, that God has been ruling over all history, and He is still ruling today, and He will always rule. And because we have these things in common, we are united by faith. So because we are united by faith, it would be unnatural for us to settle for disunity. It would be unnatural for us to say, you know, we're united in one body, one spirit. We, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one God and Father of all. But, well, I don't really like your hair. So we can't really get along. That's completely unnatural. Instead, we are to make every effort. This reminds me of how we closed out the message just a couple weeks ago talking about, dis, or talking about unity where we asked the question, what is one relationship in your life that is in need of restoration? Then we asked the second question, what's one step you can take this week to bring about peace in that relationship? to bring about unity. As we see this idea again to make every effort to pursue unity, I think we need to look back there and say, have we made every effort or have, we, or have we just settled for things the way that they are? This call to unity is not an abstract concept, but it's something that is concrete. It's something that interferes with our everyday lives. It's something that interferes with our preferences. It interferes with our decisions that we would make day in and day out. And like we said just a couple weeks ago, If we are actively or passively settling for disunity, we are working against what Christ died to accomplish, which was our our reconciliation with God and also with one another. And we are saying something to the watching world about what we believe about the heart of God. We're saying something to the world about what we believe about what Christ has accomplished. Now, the beauty of this unity that that God has in his design is that in the midst of this unity, he's given a diversity of gifts. This brings us to the second point here where we see that we are gifted by grace. Paul talks about this in verses seven and eight, where he says, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to the people. As we look at these couple of verses, I think we learn a few really important things. I think the first thing we see here is that Jesus gives gifts to everyone. Jesus gives everyone gifts. Now, I have to be honest, and I know a lot of you probably aren't nearly as skeptical as I am, but whenever I see that idea of Jesus giving everyone gifts, well, I can't help but think of one of the things I despise most in our world today, and that is participation trophies. As I see this idea of Jesus giving everyone gifts, I can't help but think that it's like this picture of, oh, you didn't show up for any practices or games this year, but you're here at the banquet today, so here's your trophy. Great job this year. What's with that? Now, I want to let you know that if you have a problem with my disdain for participation trophies, you can email me at rlangston at (laughs) cccgo.com. or at pheller at cccgo.com. Both of those emails work. We'll get back with you as soon as we can. But whenever I think about this idea of participation trophies, I think that this is like Jesus looking at us and saying, oh, that poor person, if I don't give them a gift, they're never going to do anything. But that's not the picture that we have here. It's not that Jesus is giving us gifts because he feels sorry for us or because he thinks that that we will never be able to, to do anything at all, but he's giving us gifts to actually contribute to the body. His design is for each and every follower of Jesus to play their part in fulfilling the mission that God's laid before the church. And as we'll see whenever we get down to verse 16, unless every part of the body is playing their role, the church does not function as God has designed the church to function. The fact is, is that God has given each and every follower of Jesus a gift. And that gift is purposeful. And that gift actually contributes to the advancement of his kingdom. It's not that he feels sorry for us. It's that he is inviting us in and he has created us for much more than we live in on our own. Now, the second thing that we see in this passage is that these gifts are given by grace. It's only by grace that we can fulfill our role in the body. stretching idea whenever we think about this is that I think that this means that for us if our role happens to change or if the exercise of our giftedness happens to change throughout years we can't get upset about that because those gifts don't define us those gifts aren't all that we are but instead these gifts have been given by grace They've been given us to us by grace. So if how we exercise those gifts changes over time, as long as they're still fulfilling their purpose, we need to be a grateful people. How we exercise our gifts may change, but the fact is that God has still given these to us by grace. Because these gifts are given to us by grace, it means that we can't get upset about someone else's level of giftedness, Right? The fact is that it's been given to them by grace. So no matter how little you think about someone's gifting or how much you think of someone's gifting, it's an act of grace that they even have it. As we think about this, we need to recognize that that means that we cannot boast in our gifting. Not only that, but whenever we see someone and we think, oh my goodness, that person has been super gifted. What we shouldn't do is put that person on a pedestal and begin to praise them. Instead, we should begin to praise the one who gave them that gift. They only have the gift by grace. So whenever we see really gifted people exercising the gifts that God should give them, it shouldn't leave us in awe in them. It should leave us in awe of our God who has gifted them. Now, the third thing I think we see in this section of this passage is that God gives people as gifts. You see this in verse 11. As Paul writes this, and he says, And he he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, you see this idea of God giving gifts to people. And I think we see a glimpse of that in this passage as well. But this passage right here in verse 11 makes it explicit that God's gift is sometimes people themselves. That God gives people to fill certain roles and those people are to be seen as gifts. Near the end of his book, Letters to the Church, Francis Chan reflects on this passage and asks the question, when is the last time we thought about our leaders as gifts? As a leader in the church, a question I have to think through is, when is the last time I saw my role as a gift instead of something that I've earned in some way? That's something we have to continually check again and again. Are we seeing the gifts that God has given us as gifts or as things that that, that we've kind of earned over time? Now, whenever we think about this, it brings us to our third and final point as we move to the close of this passage. We see that we, all of us, are contributors by design. Here's what Paul writes in verses 11 through 13. He says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. As we saw above, God has given people as gifts. But what may be even more stretching for us is to think about the role of these people that he's given. What is it that God has called them to do? You see there in verse 12, let's look at it one more time. Here is what Paul writes. He says that he's given to them for equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. My role as a pastor here at Crossroads is to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Anyone who is in Christ has been made a saint by what Christ has done. The beauty of the gospel is that what Christ did is he gave us a way to take onto himself all of our sinfulness and to give us his righteousness. And in that act, he has made us saints. Saints are not some special class of Christian. It's each and every follower of Jesus who is now a saint. And Paul is saying here that these roles that he's given to the church, that the reason he's given them to the church is for the equipping of the saints. That means that whenever we come here, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we call this our church home, we don't come here to be entertained. The fact is, is you can go any number of places in our city and hear great, great music. You can go all over the place and even on YouTube and you can find a whole lot of people that are a lot funnier than I am. So if you want to be entertained, you're coming to the wrong place. But if we see here that the role of the church, the role of us here is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, we see that we are now settling in on God's design. God's design is to equip the saints, all followers of Jesus, for the work of ministry. Now, whenever we think about that idea of the work of ministry, we need to be really clear that the work of ministry is not what happens here on a stage week in and week out. What happens here on a stage may be great, but if we settle for thinking about what happens here on a stage or in our kids' area as being the work of ministry, our city is never going to experience crossroads as God has designed crossroads to function. I'm going to say that one more time. If we think about the work of ministry as what happens up here or in this building, we are going to miss the fact that our city is never going to see crossroads as God has designed them to function. Because God has designed us to do the work of ministry, not always in this building, but in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, and wherever else God takes us throughout the week. The role of leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, as we think about this, I think about how sometimes I'll be standing back in our kid's wing, which is where I hang out most weekends and people will come in and and sometimes people are like, man, I, I don't know how you guys have this all together. I mean, everything's in place. You guys are good to go. And I'm there thinking, you should have been here on Thursday whenever we still had four holes to fill in our nursery. And so we're just calling random people, like not random people, people who have a background check who are approved. But we're calling everyone on our list saying, can you please come? I know you've been here the last 16 weeks. We just need one more week and then we'll give you a break, okay? We're week in and week out trying to fill these roles to make sure that our kids can be loved and cared for. Additionally, we see these needs throughout our church. If you're here or if you're at our West Campus, what you need to know is that anything that you see or hear in a service is contributed to by a volunteer who is serving in a role. We have incredible people who are serving like Zach at our West Campus. And Zach would love to have you come and serve with him on our production team. Or if you're here at Newburgh, we've got people like Brandon Green and Tyler Spells who would love for you to come and serve with them because there are needs for us to do what we do week in and week out. An area I am super passionate about is our family ministries area. I mean, after all, I'm our family ministries pastor, so if I'm not passionate about that, you guys need to get rid of me, Okay. <laughs> And as we think about family ministries, the thing that keeps me awake at night, the thing that I spend most of my time thinking about throughout the week is how on earth do we establish faith in our kids and in our students that won't just last them through their time here in our building, but will sustain them throughout the rest of their lives. How do we build a foundation? How do we pour into kids so that they have a faith that lasts? As we look at this idea, we see very clearly that parents play an essential role in this. But the thing that research shows us as we look at what happens whenever faith sticks in kids, one of the primary markers of faith that lasts in kids is that that kid or student has had five other people, five other adults in their life who are reinforcing God's plan and design for their life. There are five other adults in their life who are pouring into them in real and intentional ways. And I think a question that I would love all of you here to wonder today, whether you're here in Newburgh or at our West Campus is could you be one of those five for some of our students? Could you be one of those five people who begin laying a foundation even for our kids in the nursery, letting them know that their creator has created them good and their creator loves them? with our preschoolers that are beginning to be at wonder with what's going on in our world. Could you be one of those five that come and begin to pour into them and show them that the God that made all things really is that big and he really is that great. Could you go into our elementary area and not have all the answers, but be willing to wrestle through the questions with kids as they begin to have new questions? Could you serve in our student ministry and be there as students are trying to figure out how to make sense of this world around them as it changes constantly around them? Could you be one of those five to pour into our kids? If you're interested in serving in our family ministry or in our uh, production team or anywhere else here on our building, you can go to cccgo.com forward slash serve, and I would encourage you to look at what role you can play. We also have local partners like Community One, and maybe you have some construction skill set that you need to contribute to loving our neighbors in our city well, or maybe you need to plug in at Potter's Wheel and figure out what's going on in our city and how you can best contribute. Maybe you want to join people like Donna Myers and Patty Leahy and Tom and Brenda Webster and others who serve with these different ministries, and if you want to figure out how to serve in our community with these partners or other partners, you can do that by going to cccgo.com forward slash community. You can go there and find out what opportunities there are to serve with our partners. At Crossroads, as we come here, I think we need to recognize that the work of ministry, we would do, be doing ourselves and God's mission a disservice if we thought that the work of ministry was limited to everything that happened in this building or the things that we oversee. The work of ministry is something that takes place not just in this building, not just in our partners around our city, but it's something that needs to take place in your household. It's something that needs to take place in your workplace. It needs to happen wherever you go. So as we think about this idea of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, maybe for you, the work of ministry that you need built up in is continuing to figure out what it looks like for you to love well in your home or in your workplace so that people begin asking questions about the God that you serve. As we think about this idea of the work of ministry, maybe for you it means that you do need to take that step that that maybe pricked your heart last week when you heard about the foster care crisis in our city. Maybe for you that work of ministry means you need to go ahead and take that step to get engaged and actually become a foster parent. Maybe for you, the work of ministry is that you choose to love and care for the widow or widower on your street who feels abandoned and all alone and you let them know that not only are they not forgotten by their neighbor, but they're not forgotten by their God. Maybe for you, The work of ministry is choosing to love that difficult neighbor so that whenever something challenging happens in that difficult neighbor's life, they come to you and they say, why on earth did you love me whenever I was a jerk? And you can say, it's because my God is a big God who has loved me. Maybe for you, the work of ministry means that you need to be built up to be a leader in your workplace that instead of reflecting the values of our world, reflects our God to those who work under you so that you care for them as image bearers and you care for them as real people. And in the process, you begin to cause them to ask questions about why it is that you love and serve and and ultimately lead the way you do. And what they end up hearing from you is that it's because you're loving and serving because of the God that you have, not because of whatever else is going on at your job. The work of ministry means that we represent God wherever God takes us. It means that we are contributors here in our building. We are contributors with our partners, but it also means that we are contributors in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And the result of us participating in the work of ministry, while I don't know what it is for you, I know what it results in. It results in the building up of the body. It results in the body of Christ being built up, which I think means two different things. One, it does mean that we grow numerically. I mean, just go back to verse 11 and see those two roles of the apostle, who's the one who goes to new places and takes the gospel to where it's not known. And you also see the evangelist who is sharing the gospel with those who don't know Christ yet and bringing them in. So this idea of building up the body definitely means that idea of actually bringing new people in and that can never be forgotten. But it's that and the building up of the body, the development of those who are in Christ, as we see just with that body metaphor that Paul uses in this passage to talk about what's happening. And the result of the building up of the body is that we become a mature people. We become people who grow up in maturity. Now the danger that we have whenever we hear that word mature is that sometimes we have a tendency to think about that in the church as simply gaining more and more knowledge. We think that we can come here week in and week out and just receive more information, check that off the list and move on with our life. But what Paul is saying here in this passage is that God's design for the church is for us to take what's been put in and us to put it into practice in our everyday life. Over these last several months, as I've preached more frequently than I've ever had, the the biggest thing that, that it's changed in me is how I think about how I listen to sermons. You see, because one of the gifts that I have in life is I am one of the most critical people in the world whenever it comes to listen to people's sermons. I mean, I've been in Bible college, basically the last 10 years, Bible college or seminary. And so what I can do is I can point out holes in every sermon, including the Sermon on the Mount, okay? But the thing that I've begun to shift that has begun to cause more maturity in me than I think just about anything else is I've begun to listen to sermons asking the question, what is it that God's saying here that I can obey? Rather than trying to find a hole in the message that I'm hearing, I begin to ask the question, what is it that I can obey here? What is it that I can begin to exercise? How is this message, how is what's being said actually allowing me to be built up to live as a better husband, to live as a better father, to be a better coworker, to be a better leader? And I've begun to try to put that into practice. And I have to be honest, it's not easy, but I think that that is this process of maturity that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about gaining more knowledge. He's talking about us putting into action the knowledge we have received. He's talking about us putting into practice what we experience week in and week out. I mean, think about an athlete. If an athlete just constantly trains and trains and trains and trains, but never actually puts it into practice in a game, he's not fulfilling his role. He's not doing what he is designed to do. In the same way here at the church, if all we do is we come in and we gain more knowledge, we gain more information, we gain more, we gain more, and we never go out and practice it, we are not living according to God's design for the church. You know, whenever people come here and they first come to Christ, what I never hear people say is, you know what, in five years, I want to be right where I am today. I don't want to grow at all. In fact, if in five years I could be disconnected from the church, that's my plan. That's my pipeline. That's where I want to go. I never hear anyone say that. What I usually hear people say is, man, I want to go deeper. I want to learn more. I want to go, 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 go. And the thing I think that we see is sometimes after that initial fire comes in, what we end up doing is we turn ourselves into consumers and we miss the fact that we aren't meant to just consume, but we're meant to take in and go out and put into practice. And I believe it's whenever we begin to put into practice that faith begins to be developed and built into us that lasts and sustains So the thing we need to see here is that the call here to grow into maturity is a call to put into practice what God has put into us. It's a call to practice what God does in us each and every week. And as we think about the way that God has designed a body and we think about the fact that the body doesn't function like it's supposed to unless the brain does its job, unless the heart does its job, unless the intestines does its part, right? Unless all parts are doing their role, the body doesn't function like it's supposed to. In the same way in the church, unless every part is doing their role, it's not going to function like it's supposed to. Fact is is that we will never have the healthy nursery, preschool, elementary area, student ministry, production team, or any other area in our church. It won't be as healthy as it's supposed to until all of our body is filling in the roles the way that God has designed them and called them to do it. Every role, every part playing their role. Now, here's how Paul wraps up this message. He says, then we will no longer be little children. After we mature, we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking truth in love, and just stop right there for a second, because this idea of speaking truth in love is not the permission to be a jerk to those around you and say, just doing it in love, your hair looks terrible today. Just doing it in love, you're a complete jerk. Just want to tell you this in love, um, that really annoys me. No, this idea of speaking truth in love is speaking the truth of who God is and what he's done. It's speaking the truth of the gospel into people's lives to allow them to see that God has better things for them. It's being willing to speak the truth whenever you see someone becoming a child tossed in the wind and saying, God has something better for you. He has a sure and secure foundation that you don't have to change every couple of years as you hear a new teaching. God has a foundation for you that he wants to build on. It's letting people know as they continue to turn from him, God's best isn't found as you continue to run after these things. God's best is found as you turn to him. And it's speaking that in love with a genuine love and concern because you want to see them experience God's fullness. So let's jump in here. But speaking truth and love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fit, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for, the building, or for building up itself in love by the proper working of what? Of each individual part. God's design for the church is for each and every part to contribute for each and every part to play their role, to exercise what God has put in them and to allow that to be experienced by those around them so that the world around them can see that God's people really have been transformed and that the same power that's transformed them can be something that changes our whole world and our whole city. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has a role for you and he desires you to contribute. If you're here and you're in a place where you've been beat up and you've been hurting, I want to let you know we're not saying pull your, your boots up, you know, just keep going. What we're saying is we want to be a place where you can heal, but we want to build you up so that you can come back to God's design for you. We want you to experience all that God has for you. We don't want you to stay in a place of brokenness forever. We want you to experience the fullness that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you have given us all roles to play. God, as a people, we want to step into what you have for us. God, we want to be a people who experience your goodness, who fulfill our role wherever we go. So change us, transform us, and allow us to do what you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.